Neves Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution. A very warm welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia Elcoury. And good evening, I am Seema Baka. So before we go on to the show, I want to say a very, very special hello to two lovely little boys who are listening in in Fleetville, Luke and Key and Gigane. Boys, I hope you liked the Sean Mendes, but it's time to go to bed. <laughs> um, all right, so tonight's show, we've really divided into two completely separate subjects and um but both uh, very relevant to to parents in in our area of course and the first guest we'll be talking to then tonight is um Olive Hickmott and she is a forensic learning coach now do you know what a forensic learning coach is, Seema? The best thing about doing this show, uh, Lydia, is that I learn so much. And I didn't know what a forensic learning coach was before we booked Olive. Yeah, so we will learn. I mean, and I've spoken to Olive and um, she'll she'll explain it in uh, wonderful detail in just a few minutes. So she's going to talk to us about how mental images for... Um, how highly visual children process mental vi- vi- images on a day-to-day basis and how that can actually have an impact on learning difficulties. So we'll be speaking specifically about children with dyslexia, ADHD, touching on autism and how these images, if managed properly, can help children to learn more successfully. So there are so many parents out there, I'm sure, Seema, who have been desperate for support and help on exactly the, these issues. Yeah. And, um, so it'll be very valuable. We are very open to questions. So we're on, uh, Radio Verland Parent Show on Facebook. If you want to pop your questions there, either through Messenger or directly on the page, um, we'll pass your uh, questions on to Olive. Wonderful. And then the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about something that's very current because it's eating disorders this week. And, as a parent, but speaking to all those other parents out there as well, it's the kind of thing that worries us. We don't want to think about it necessarily, um, but there's also a dread that it might affect one of our own children. And so it's really important that we inform ourselves um, so that we can make sure that we're not caught unaware. Um, you know, we, we all know that there is anorexia, that there is bulimia, that there's... a uh, binge eating as disorders and actually the statistics on this are are really scary Lydia. yeah they are there's no getting away from it no really. so you know um kids aged 13 to 18 about 5.4 percent of those kids are suffering from these eating disorders that i've just mentioned at some point in their life and that you know roughly is about over two million kids um you know that is really quite scary statistics so we're going to be talking to recovery coach uh, Hannah Brown about her own experience her advice for others and how she helps others deal with these disorders yeah and, and the truth of the matter is I mean it is a subject that people think that if you talk about it you're actually going to cause your child to get an eating disorder whereas it seems like all the experts and I'd be dying to talk to Hannah about that say that's actually the worst thing you can possibly do is yeah make it a taboo subject that you shouldn't talk about. But um, we'll we'll get it straight from Hannah in about half an hour. Halfway through the show, um, we'll be inviting her on air. So first up, as we mentioned, we've got Olive Hickmott, who's joining us on the line now. Hi, Olive. Hello. Olive, we, you're very, very welcome on the Parents Show this evening. And we're dying to know what a forensic learning coach is. You're going to have to illuminate us. Well, yes, the... Um Every child is different in my um, map of the world, and it would be really boring if we were all the same anyway. And I typically talk with children and with parents of children who are highly creative and imaginative children, and they're just not learning in the same way as they're being taught. Right. And this is known as neurodivergent thinking and learning. And my expertise is to talk to the child and understand how they're learning or how they're not learning in particular circumstances, and help them with some more tools and some more tips. Um, If they're not learning in the way they're being taught, it can lead to dyslexia and ADHD and stress and anxiety and so much more. 
And so as a forensic learning coach, I just explore what's working successfully and what's not working and give them different ideas. Typically, we focus on uh, things like stress and feelings of, of safety, anxiety, and in particular, their visual strengths. These are the mental images that they hold in their head. And we've all got mental images in our heads. And do we all have the same amount of mental images in our head? And do we all have them in, in the same way? Uh, no, we have, we have, we're, a lot of us are different. Um, some people have glorious technicolor mental images. So they can actually picture like a 36-inch color television. Um, some people have got black and white images. Some people's images just fly past. And you can just check out your own images and just think, how do you know what your car looks like? How do you know what your spouse or your kids or your parents look like? How do you know your way home? All of those sort of really simple things we do through creating mental images in our heads. And those are the mental images that, that I talk about all the time. The only group of people that tend to be taught about mental imagery is sports people. Um, you've got, if you want to do be a pole vaulter, for example, you've got to have a really good mental image of, you know, running along the track, dropping the pole in, climbing up the pole and going over the bar. And so sports people quite often get taught about mental imagery. And people like dancers have got great mental imagery. They know exactly how to recall a dance that they're going to do. Or architects can imagine a building. They can actually imagine doing a cross-section of a building. So they can look for it. They can, it's like a doll's house. They can open it up and see what it looks like inside. And some people have got quite exceptional mental images. And a lot of the creative kids I work with have got great um, mental images. These are the kids that um, can build Lego without the instructions. They can build IKEA furniture without the instructions. They can look at something like a 2D map and see it in 3D. Um, they can, they're great designers. And um, as they grow up through life, they may well end up with in some sort of media role or problem-solving role where those skills are absolutely fantastic. And then, so that's the images of pictures, if you like, which is one part of it. Then we have images of words. Now, if you're going to be good at literacy, you need to be able to hold images of words. So if, for example, you want to spell the word giraffe, and the audience can try this out for themselves, when you say the word giraffe, they may see a picture of a giraffe, or they may actually see the word giraffe, and they may be able to check out how many R's and how many F's it's got. And so those are mental images of, of words. And the same is true for mental images of numbers. To be good in school for um, and learning the math curriculum, even when you're really young, you need mental images of numbers. So even in reception year, year one and year two, the way it's taught it does assume you've got mental images of numbers. And the next thing is that you've got to be able to control these mental images. And if you've got a child who's been diagnosed with ADHD or you've just continuously told at school that this child is distracted, then you can almost guarantee that they haven't got their mental images under control. They're racing around and... They're doing some really creative, imaginative stuff, but it might not be what is required of them when they're in the middle of a science lesson. Right. Uh, so that's quite a bit to take in, Olive. So I just can I just check? I've I've, yeah, I've got it um, for 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 listeners and for myself. So there's mental images of pic of pictures, pictures, mental images of words, and mental images of numbers. Absolutely. And and the process of creating those mental images varies from child to child. Is that right? Well, a lot of children just pick it up um, when they're really young. I mean, actually, uh, mental images, when you, you recognize your parents when you're six weeks old. 
So if your mum wears a pink curly wig or wears a hat, then you then children will quite often cry because that doesn't match the mental image that they've got of them. So we know they've got mental images of pictures when they're really young. And when they get into school and they start doing work on words and numbers, they have to start generating mental images of words and numbers. But we don't actually explicitly teach that in school. And a lot of children, say 50% of the population, will pick it up naturally. So these are the kids that are doing really well in school because they've accidentally got mental images of words and numbers. But those that haven't are going to be struggling. Right. And are those who struggle generally children who have a special educational need? Well, if it goes on for long enough and they don't accidentally pick up the skill, then they will end up with a special educational need. Right. So oh, I can give you a statistic. Yes. Of all the children that we've, I've ever seen, and I've met thousands of dyslexic children, not one of them has been properly visualising words. And we teach them. So they, so basically, when you say giraffe to a child with dyslexia, they just can't see that word in their head. They probably see the word, the, the, the giraffe. Ah, as opposed to the actual Absolutely. word. Absolutely. No even- words. It's like one kid once said to me, I'm not sure I like subtitles on my pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very, very cute, isn't it? Exactly. But, uh, and so if they're seeing mental images of the word, then they're probably going to be a really good speller, right? Yep. And if they're not, then they're probably not. Yep. And this is particularly true in English because <laughs> in English, not everything is spelt phonetically correctly. It's yeah. not a perfectly phonetic language. If you're Italian, it don't, you don't have the same problem because Italian is a perfectly phonetic language. So whatever you hear is what you write down. But in English, you can't do that because phone would be spelt F-O-N-E. Yeah. And it's not. No. And there are quite a few examples of that in the English oh. language, aren't there? It's a bit of a, a, bit of a pain. I, I was once told, and I, can't, I can only repeat this, because I've not tried it myself, only 46% of the English language is spelled correctly, phonetically. <gasps> really? Gosh, that means so... so There's a 50-50 chance there. <laughs> of getting it right. So I think what parents who are listening to this, um, whether they have special educational ne- children with special educational needs or not, are thinking, can I do anything about it? Is there Certainly anything can. you can do to develop the kind of the ability to I- I- imagine words, numbers? Yep. Absolutely. Um, the place to start is just ask the children about their images. So when they're talking about something which might be a day at school or it might be their favourite game or whatever it is, ask them if they've got mental images of that in their head. Uh, there's a real telltale sign is that if children are looking up, um, then they're probably looking at mental images. So if they come home from school and they're looking up and they're telling you about what's going on in school, you can probably guarantee, more or less, that they are seeing pictures. You know, they're seeing a picture of what happened in a out in the playground, for example, and then they're just watching the picture in their head, which might be a movie, and they're just telling their mum about what's happening. So start talking to them about their mental images. Questions like, um, so when you when you say to them, how how was school today? Anything happened in the playground? And if and watch them, and then ask them questions about what they're telling you. Yeah, exactly. And you know, if you if they said, you know, a clown came into school today, I don't know something or other, and you go, well, what were they wearing? You know, and get them to describe what they were wearing. And so it's it's getting them to realise that mental imagery is okay, and it's an absolutely vital part of learning. And so the more you can do that, the better. Um, you can um, try and help them to be in a relaxed state when they're doing anything. Um, they're not going to learn and um, think clearly if they're stressed and worried, etc. And I know a lot of picture parents are going to be in a battleground over homework and stuff like that. But nothing goes in if you're in a stressed mode. 
And so if whatever you can do to keep them calm, let them defuse a bit when they come home, um, whatever you can do will actually help them. Um, look at what one of the lovely things I love doing with the students I meet is to ask them about what they can, what they do well. And probably the, the average, the average teenager um, will probably tell you nothing. Um, so what you do is you just inquire a bit and find something that they, they think they can do well. We had a, we had a child recently who made origami wheels. Do you know what I mean? With, with folded paper. Oh, fantastic. You mean with the spokes and everything? Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Fantastic. <laughs> and I've never met anybody else who can make origami wheels. And by the time we finished talking to him about how he did it and how he could remember how to do it, then it was just, you, this was clearly a, an incredible strength. You can talk to people about building Lego models without the instructions. Um, Anything you can think of that they do, they do, and they really enjoy doing, and um, help inquire about how they do it. And, and then you can start moving on to asking them about whether they picture words and if they picture numbers. Right, right. And at that point, you'll know how how your child is processing. Exactly, and it's ever it's incredibly interesting. I mean, parents regularly say to me. This is absolutely fascinating. I had no idea that my child did that um, because it's not a question you often ask. Um, visual learning is in the national curriculum, but they, there is no teacher training which trains people how to um, understand mental imagery uh, to the extent that we have. And if you want to be a fluent reader or a fluent speller, mental images of words are absolutely essential. And the same thing for numbers. Um, can I can I ask, Olive, yep. with, um, with maths, I think I've seen one of the things that you've written is a symptom of a child who is struggling with the mental images of numbers because... Because that makes complete sense, you know, being able to do any mental arithmetic is dependent on you in your mind being able to identify the number itself, yeah. what it looks like. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that makes complete sense. But with one of the things I think I've seen you've written is that numbers, some children might be writing their numbers back to front that might show that yeah. they're having problems with the Let mental it. imagery. That is also going to happen with young children anyway. Um so I was just wondering, what kind of age are we talking about where you might, where a parent might think that is something that is more serious than then just haven't quite figured out how to write it the right, right way around? Cause well, to, the, the thing is, you see, about writing, it's the same thing with letters, about writing, you get letter reversals and you get number yeah. reversals. Yeah. Letter reversals are even worse because some lowercase letters turn into other lowercase letters, mm. like B... D, P, and Q, they, if you just flip them round, they turn into other ones. But if they've not got strong mental images of letters or numbers, then they try and move them round to try and make sense of them. Yeah. Um, and so what, and so, so, you know, is there a particular age where you might I, think if, if they're not being able to, Distinguish I mean, them the right way round. It might be something to worry about. I wouldn't worry about any of this, to be honest. I would actually start teaching them to use their mental images um, and how to use them because there is a lot of people that are just not using mental imagery properly. And when they go to write a letter, they haven't got a mental image of what that letter should look like. So if you go to write the word, the audience can try this, if you go to write the word A, you've got some sort of mental image of what an A looks like. Yeah. Especially when you're only four years old. Um, but if you, if you haven't got a mental image of it, then you're going to end up with something really odd. I'd like to give your audience a couple of tips, actually. Um, one of them is, which is lovely, is to... When, if you've got a child who's having difficulty writing, then hold a, um, get them to look at something on the wall which has got writing on it and get them to write without looking at the paper. So 
So they're just copying the shapes of the letters. And at the start with it, it'll be a bit wonky, um, but after a bit, it'll actually straighten out. And that is a really useful tip for when they've got to copy down anything from the board. Right. That's a, so it's a good, good thing to practice. Yep. When they're trying to read, do prop the book up so they're not looking stra- straight down at the book on the table because our mental imagery is when our eyes are up and our emotions come up when our eyes are down. So if you've got a child who gets regularly upset about reading, please don't let them look down at the book. Get them to look up at it. And if you think about what you do to read a book, if you're sitting in an armchair, you've got the book propped up in front of you. You haven't got it flat. And some people who are really stressed get the letters moving around on the page and or drifting. And it's much worse if you're looking down because you're, you've got that emotional charge connected to it. Mm. It, I mean, it's just amazing, Olive, and it's amazing to think that there's help for children with uh, special learning. Is it special learning needs or special learning? Well, I just, I, I mean, we we work, uh, and the, we've got practitioners all over the place, and we try to work down right down to reception level, so that if children are learning these skills, a lot of um, the problems that they get into as they get older with literacy, numeracy, and anything else, will be reduced if they're visualizing well. So it's not that children won't develop dyslexia or ADHD or autism, but just that the impact will be lessened if from the beginning they're taught this technique, a technique of visualizing. Absolutely. And who knows? Some people may never develop it. That's 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 amazing. And have you worked with children from early on who... Yep. Have been have have you worked with them and brought them back? Have brought their levy, re, uh, sorry learning levels up? Absolutely. And the the thing is, as the children get older, they get into real problems about themselves. They think they're stupid. They can't understand why they can't learn, and you get all these buckets of negativity coming up. Yeah. Um, that I'm you know, I'm trying to stop happening, if you like, because these kids are really bright. They are, every, every neurodivergent child I've ever met is a really bright child and we're letting them down if we're not teaching them this skill for using mental imagery. It's a vital part of learning. So, um, Olive, and just, we're, we're running quickly out of time, so just a couple more questions. Yep. Um, you, do you see a difference between boys and girls? Um, not really. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> okay. I know the theory is yeah. there is a difference, but I don't know. I think when uh, kids get very stressed, they, what happens with mental imagery is it starts to move around. Yeah. And that's a really negative thing. And I think the boys can move it faster than the girls, probably. Right. <laughs> but other than that, you don't really, it's not remarkable. And so what can parents do? So can parents manage this on their own? Is there a role for parents or is it, does it kind of need a specialist? I would first of all ask them to um, ask the kids some questions about their mental images. Secondly, I desperately want schools to be doing some sort of check of um, by, the, by their first levels. So, And I would like them to check their mental imagery right down in reception class. We've had practitioners in reception class who have checked out mental images and uh, one of the teachers turned around to us and said, i tell you what you didn't tell us when we um, started doing this work, that if we did this with children, their confidence would dramatically improve. I cannot believe how the confidence of all the kids in my class has improved. So they can encourage their parents to talk to me um, and we'll help them. Yeah. There, is, um, there is a website, empoweringlearning.co.uk, where there's lots of free stuff. And we have practitioners who can help and they are more than welcome to just contact me, the, the telephone number's on the website, and just talk to me because, I mean, every month I run... Teleseminars um, on the first Wednesday of every month, which is next week, I think, 
um, one in the morning and one in the evening just to talk to people about mental imagery when they have not a clue what this is about. They've probably never heard the expression, uh, but it is part of the national curriculum. Uh, it's just that we don't focus on how to teach it. Yeah, I mean, that it's fascinating. I'm sure there's lots of parents out there who really want to know more about it. And we, we're obviously going to put the Empowering Learning uh, website on our Facebook page and parents have a real opportunity to dig deeper into what you're talking about, Olive. And I, I really just, I mean, there's a testimonial that's kind of screaming at me and uh, I want to read it out. And obviously a testimonial is going to tell you positive things, but it feels... Um, it feels really heartening. So a GP said, uh, was quoted on your website as saying, I was privileged to witness Olive Hickmott teach two girls aged approx six and nine how to spell using visualization and grounding. Within one hour, they were so adept that they were spelling words backwards. It proved to be a magical learning experience for the children, parents and me, so much so that five hours later, the girls did not want to go home. The speed and joy of learning has been reawakened in these girls who at the beginning were so tentative. These techniques need to be rolled out to all schools as soon as possible. Seeing is believing. So it's a ringing endorsement and obviously it's on your website so it's going to say positive things but I think for parents to listen to you all of get a, get a taste for what you're saying and then go to the website if it, if it resonates with them there it, there's just a lot of content there isn't there Sure and I'll go and have a look on the um Radio Verulam website and if anybody wants to uh, put questions on there I will attempt to answer them Oh, fantastic, Olive. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very, very much oh, indeed. Don't keep me up all night. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might regret that. Brilliant. <laughs> but uh, fantastic to talk to you, Olive, and um, hope to have you back on the parents show soon. Lovely. Thank you for the invitation. All Thanks. the best. Okay. Bye. So that was Olive Hickmott, who is a forensic learning coach um, in in the area. And um, as I say, we're going to pop her w- uh, website on our Facebook page, on the Radio Verulam Parents Show Facebook page. Interact. She's going on the page now. If you have any questions, if anything caught your attention, if you have a child with special educational needs and you'd like to try this out, please, please uh, drop her a question. I think it's a unique opportunity. Quick break. And then we're coming back with Hannah Brown, who's going to talk to us about um, eating disorders week which is this week the parent show is sponsored by neve solicitors neve solicitors are proud to sponsor the parent show the friendly team at neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life visit nevesolicitors.co.uk neve solicitors Welcome back to the Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM and thanks to our guest, uh, Olive Hickmott, who was talking to us about visualisation and learning and um, the role it plays in how children learn. So we're really delighted to welcome our next guest um, who's joining us on the line at the moment now, Hannah Brown. Hi, Hannah. Hi, how are you? Great, and it's great to have you on the Parents Show uh, again. We're delighted to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, now, listen, tell us a little bit. So tell us a little bit about your experience. We know it's Eating Disorders Week and that's why we're delighted to have you on the Parents Show to talk to parents um, about your experience. Um, tell us about how and how you were so unwell. So I was um, unfortunately taken really, really unwell um, after starting a diet at the age of 19. Um, I really naively thought that I had um, some weight to lose and so began this gradual descent and spiral into a really severe mental and physical illness. Um, By the age of 22, 23, um, I'd actually become so grossly unwell both um, physically and mentally that I was admitted to hospital with the diagnosis of anorexia. Five years on, I've kind of come... Um, a long, long way. I've still got a long way to go. Um, recovery is really, really tough and it's something that I struggle with every single day, but that it's so important that we get talking about. Um, and that we recognize that everybody has mental health as well as physical health and that we really break down that stigma. Hmm. And Hannah, thank you so much for sharing sharing about um, being unwell with us because I know it it can't be an easy thing to do but tell us what the hardest part about it was for you it was everything that I lost that was of so much value and significance in my life that far surpassed 
the, the loss of weight that is kind of almost inevitable with the diagnosis of anorexia, but it was the sparkle behind my eyes, the soul, my spirit, um, my ability to have fun and have this carefree life um, that I, I had for 19 glorious, really stunning years that suddenly just I lost my ability to be present in the relationships that I was I wanted to be closest to. So, for example, as a daughter, as a friend, as a girlfriend, as a sister, those are the things now that I almost grieve for. And do you feel that you are getting it back, you have it back, or you're on, on the way to getting it back? Oh, good question. Um, I don't think I'll ever get it fully back. I think I'm now um, evolving into somebody completely new, which is fine, because, hey, you know what, people grow up, it's been nine years. Um, but I don't think I'll ever have that carefree attitude that I once had um, because my illness has developed into now something almost completely different into quite a severe depression and anxiety um, that I have to deal with every single day and it still continues to manifest itself in some of those anorexic behaviours and tendencies. That, and it's, yeah, an incred incred I'm sure you've been through an incredible tough tough time throughout and tell us why is it so important to raise awareness for eating disorders it's i cannot reiterate enough and emphasize how important it is to have conversations with young people about their relationship with food with their body image and most importantly with their self-esteem there remains such a stigma around eating disorders um and so often it's just commonly associated with eating disorders, anorexia, super skinny. And actually that could not be further from the truth. There are so many forms and variants of eating disorders now that it's so important that there's that awareness raised that people are not hyper aware of it, but that actually they are looking up some of the warning signs. Um, one of the biggest precursors to an eating disorder is a diet. How many of us have dieted and how many of these can lead to a really disordered relationship with food and ourselves. So it's really essential that actually we continue to look at our young people and how they're being affected. And tell us, tell, so you said it's, it's completely different from, from child, from, for, from person to person. Can mm. you, can you talk to us about how you, is food the trigger? Is food the, what, what role does it play, do you think? So this is a, a really interesting question um, because actually food is just the byproduct of the illness. So it could be um, sort of the tendency to binge and purge or to exercise compulsively. Um, and in that way, it's almost quite similar to an addiction. So however one chooses to cope with their situation with what might be going on in their head, whichever turmoil or trauma they're having to deal with, or it might be, as it was for me, the need to just maintain and retain control over everything in one's life. That lack of control, I then perpetuated onto food, and that's where I became so obsessed, and I got my control over my food. The same as somebody who suffers with an alcohol addiction will numb their pain through that substance a drug addict will numb their pain through their drug i numbed my pain through exercise and through the restriction of my food to almost euphoric consequences and it's i think lots of parents out there will be stunned to hear that it isn't just actually about food in in your case it was about control you're yeah. saying and um and was it was it? Do you think that if you'd found another thing to control apart from food, then you just wouldn't have had anorexia? Possibly not, but I, I have to maintain that I simply started a diet and it spiralled very quickly out of control. Yeah. yeah. For other people, it starts with a mental illness or a trauma or a trigger, which they then use food to as their coping mechanism. But for me, it wasn't a case of that. Mine was a diet first which then spiralled into the descent of anorexia. Yeah. Um, so there's almost two variants, if you like, and two ways that people can develop those eating disorders.
And so you mentioned three things. You said food, body image and self-esteem. Mm. What's what advice would you give to parents out there? So you said you said be be you know be aware of the language around that, be mindful and you know uh, of how you're using how, how children are talking about those things. Can you give us concrete examples of what you think would be positive ways to talk about those three things? The way to talk about food is as very black and white as it is. It is a fact of life that we all have to eat. Enjoy your food, stop when you're full, eat when you're hungry and move. There shouldn't be any label to food, any emotional tag. There is no good or bad food. Food is food. It gives us this amazing energy to do the incredible things that kids need to go out and do. Study, play, go out with their friends. They need the energy to really live and fuel their life and it's important that kids realise that that is what food is. In terms of the house, mum, dad, keep that, that household and the home unit really safe, comfortable environment. No talking of diets or, or judging yourself as a parent on what you look like. Because remember, kids learn and they're so susceptible to things at an early age. Mm. But also reiterating to your child that they are absolutely perfect, just the way they are. And Hannah, can I ask you though, what do you think about social influences? You know, once, I mean, in secondary school, um, girls, and I can talk about girls because I have them, I'm sure it happens with boys as well, and certainly it's, you know, as far as the media tells us, it happens a lot more with boys now, but um, it's it's really out there. I mean, imagery, selfies, how people look. Um, I heard very recently that, you know, more young people are turning away from alcohol because they don't want to look bad in the morning when they have a hangover. You know, it's not because they're turning away from alcohol. It's because of the imagery of having a hangover. So, you know, how, how can, how can you advise parents to deal with that? Because that's, that's something that is huge for, for teenagers. Yeah. So, Social media is a massive influence and it does have its benefits. And so I wouldn't say don't allow your children on social media. But, and something that I did with a school today is we took some selfies. And I said to the class, let's take some selfies. And they all said, we're going to put a filter on it, right? And I go, no, no, we're not going to put a filter. But I made them take a selfie with puffed out faces. Mm. And then I made them suck their cheeks in as much as they could just to prove that two photos gave completely different images. And that's the very point of social media. It is a snapshot of a point in time. That's it. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And it's so important that that's the message that we're getting across to children. If that model might look like that in that picture, but what's the reality? Hannah, when you go into schools, how old are the children you're talking to? So the children that I spoke to today um, were 11 and 12. Right. Okay. And um, how do they react to the way you're talking about those images? Because it's, it's, it's great stuff. It's, you know, it's really important, you know, to bring that to, mm. to them in front of them. It might be the first time they're hearing that idea that, you know, just think of that model doesn't always look like that. How are they reacting? Actually, it was a real revelation for them. And they actually ended up having loads of fun. Now, these kids were um, year seven, which, forgive me, but I think is age 11 and 12. Uh, yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. So, going in to speak to some, a class about eating disorders, teachers are, are nervous. Because what you can be uh, doing, you know, completely without fault, is almost going too into the diagnostic criteria of anorexia or bulimia. And kids don't need to know that. Right. What they need to know is how to look after themselves right from the onset, and that is keeping their self-esteem high, their confidence high. So actually what I made these kids do was um, tell me one um, amazing thing that they'd done this year. One boy stood up and showed me how he can, is it floss? (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, which was great, you know. Um, And then we spoke about self-love mantras, and they all wrote a self-love mantra um, to keep in their planner for them. Yeah. It was so incredible. The mantras these kids were coming out with, 
um, was just fantastic. And actually, the more they got accustomed to the idea, listening to them talk was just really, really humble. Um, I felt really blessed to be given that opportunity to speak to them and just see their faces light up when they realised, actually, we can just have fun. Do you talk? To, do you it, talk it to them great. about what what you have been through? Is that how your is that what your in is, um, Hannah? I'm just interested to know, uh, you know, how it is that you approach the the children in schools, and 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 ha- you know, do you talk to older children or is it yeah. generally year sevens? No, no, no. So what I do is I always introduce about the fact that I've had an eating disorder, that I suffer with an eating disorder, with you know, with my mental health. Right. Um, because that's really important. That they have somebody that they can actually relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's a year seven class, again, I'm very, very conscious of protecting them and remembering that, remembering that I don't know their vulnerability yeah. and their susceptibility to potentially developing an eating disorder. Yeah. So it's about raising their self-esteem. As the kids get a little older, it's more about, okay, what are some of the signs we can look for in each other? Mm. Then we talk about, okay, so what do you do when you're unwell? Well, the, the knee-jerk reaction is I go and ask my mum or I go tell somebody, but we don't do that with our mental health. Why don't we do that with our mental health? So it starts that conversation rolling. Yeah. Um, and as the year groups go up um, and once I begin to understand that they have that level of maturity to be able to deal with it, then we talk in a little more detail. But what I'm really conscious about doing, what I absolutely refuse to do, is show any pictures of myself having been unwell or talking graphic detail about what happened to me. Because whilst I can talk to adults about that, um, because they want to learn some very factual details, for kids, it's not about that. It's so, so important that we remember this is about self-esteem, their self-worth, and how valuable, how beautiful they are. Yeah. Because of themselves, not because of the way they look. And that's such a powerful, such a powerful message to be sending to them and getting them to, to listen to that. You know, it's really fantastic, Hannah. And do you think, do, do, are they happy staying on that level? Are they surprised that they're being spoken to about eating disorders? Well, it's interesting because today my first question was, um, what can you tell me about eating disorders? And not one person had an answer. And they may have been shy, but then I managed to get one one young lad put his hand up really shyly and he said, People die and I was like, Oh gosh, let's not put that on on the on because it's actually being filmed, let's not put that on T V. But they just don't understand it. Yeah. So actually to go in and speak about um eating disorders is something that I'm really keen to keep doing because the other thing is teachers don't want to do it parents don't want to do it hannah i can tell you yeah absolutely and i hadn't had any discussions with my mum about an eating disorder before yeah um i studied psychology for a level and i think that was probably one of the first times i spoke about it um but kids as young as five as young as five are being diagnosed yeah and that's really terrifying. It is absolutely, you know, absolutely. And it is there's this so there's a you know there's a stigma associated with it. But but also I'm aware that um, a teenager that I know recently said uh, to her father when she was kind of half questioned on not mi- missing a meal said, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. There's there's nothing wrong." What are you suggesting that there's something wrong with me because I haven't eaten a meal for and and very dismissive. You know, immediately saying, don't, don't label me as somebody yeah. who... Uh, and that's really interesting. It was almost like she was remarkably defensive. Yeah. Um, Probably because her dad had hit the mark. Mm. So you've got to remember that when we're under stress, our bodies go into this kind of fight or flight. So at that um, very moment, her dad potentially was her threat. And what was he threatening? To make, to try and get her to eat. And at, at that time, her not eating or her restricting her food is the safest place for her to be. Mm. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's why she then rebuts against her dad. And that's where, um, this is so important that people realise it's a mental illness and why it's so debilitating. It's because they find comfort in their illness, mm. which is actually this 
very bitter manipulation and quite terrifying. It's so complex, isn't it, Hannah? Because, of oh. course, you also have the the science of the teenage brain, which has to rebel, the need to rebel, which has come through, you know, come through evolution. Mm. And, and mm. that, at the same time, being able to pinpoint, is a child rebelling for the sake of rebelling, which they need to do and they will do? Uh, or is it something very specific to the food issue? Um, it's so hard... Um, to be able to understand which way where your child is it really is and and the the best bit of advice when i when people say to me well what are some of the signs to look out for and i just think oh my gosh where do you start but it's any change in your child's behavior that makes you ask a question yeah and i'm not just talking in terms of eating disorders i'm talking about self-harm cyberbullying, anything if there's something in your child that makes you go that's not right then you need to find a way to try and ask those questions. Now, there's, um, I was under the South London Maudsley team, and there is a brilliant professor there called Dr. Janet Treasure, and her and her team came up with something called the Maudsley Parenting Styles. Right. Which I don't know if you've heard, and they're based on um, animal analogies. And these analogies are so, so helpful about how we can encourage children to talk and also to take responsibility for their own mental health and it is used specifically for eating disorders but it's a brilliant brilliant tool for parents so um I, off the top of my head if i get it right you've got um um the ostrich right sticks its head in the sand yeah and just ignores the the situation yeah okay on the other hand you've got um the kangaroo who carries the baby round in its pouch all the time, doesn't let go, keeps it nice and close, smothers it. Yeah. On the other hand, you've got, and I think I'm pretty sure I'm right, it's the St. Bernard. It's there, you know it's there, and you can go back to the parent when you need to. But you can also step away, because you know your trusty St. Bernard, your parent, is always going to be there. And yeah. the way to encourage your child is to think like, this is so awful, but like a dolphin. So you gently nudge your child. You don't just, you know, say, you have this, because that will instantly flare up that fight response, that fear emotion. But instead, you're gently nudging them, nudging them to becoming aware of themselves, becoming aware of their own self-esteem. It's really interesting, and I do, if you can find it, it's really, really interesting. So it's the Maudsley Parenting Styles. Definitely. We'll pop that up on on our Facebook page. So, I mean, it is, I mean, it's so valuable hearing you talk, Hannah, and I'm sure parents out there are, you know, scribbling notes, trying to um, keep up with what you're saying. Well, so I, you, you, I have my website. Fantastic. And I would absolutely love it if, um, if there's any head teachers listening who'd like me to come in and speak to teachers for training, yeah. their pupils or even parents, um, more than happy. And equally, if parents are concerned, please, please, please get in touch. And is that that's what you're doing now, Hannah? So you're a recovery coach helping schools, parents, children yeah, not absolutely. go down the path? Up and down. And I also have you know a full-time job so that actually recovery doesn't become my identity oh. it's really really important for me that i have some time to be hannah yeah um and that's really really valuable that makes it that makes a lot of sense so if parents go to your website are there resources there because obviously saying to parents you need you need to talk to your children you need yeah. to talk about food health with i mean every parent is going to go oh my god what am yeah. i supposed to say you know they'll it, it is nerve-wracking and is there resources guidance on how to do that how to have those conversations so if you go head over to the website there is loads of advice for parents which is really really useful so it's beat.org isn't yeah, it i mean no, it's, it's beating eating disorders now ah is it okay yeah. beating eating disorders um and then if you want to get in touch with me if you type in an ear to here and i'd be really grateful if you could put a link on your facebook we will but, of course an yeah, ear i'm just to looking here. at that now actually hannah and there's lots of things here um that they can people can read about uh about about you uh, but but also about Eating Disorders Awareness Week and, and various things on here. Yeah, what, my website, yeah. yeah. It's really important. My website is really personal and bespoke peer support because what 
and what I was going to say about B is their guidance is great, but it's universal. Yeah. And every child is different. So that's why I don't necessarily put do this, do that yeah. for recovery because you just don't know your child. We talk about the dolphin approach. That's absolutely right. But what you say in that approach is going to be different for every single person. Yeah. Um, but on my website, you know, you'll find... Again, there are no photos, there are no weights, there are no details like that because it's just not relevant. But what it does offer is a really personal insight into some of the things that I lost and some of the things that I've learned um, and some of the things that I think people need to read about. Um, it's quite an honest blog, I think. Fantastic, yeah. So an ear to hear I'm and to hear, yeah. beating eating disorders is yeah. the other. I mean, that is the go-to resource as well, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely, of course, yes. So, so important. You can put your postcode into there as well and find the local services for you. Um, if you do put your postcode in, I'm SG, so I come up quite quick as well. Fantastic. That's great. Hannah, thank you so much for sharing. It's It's incredibly kind of you because... I mean, people are going to benefit from hearing you talk openly about these things. So really, really appreciate it. I'm so glad to hear that, you know, you're being very sensible at looking after yourself as well as helping other people. That's a great thing to hear, actually. That in itself is inspiring. That's such a pleasure to speak to you. It's just so important that we just continue to talk, talk to your children, understand your children. And as I said, any questions at all, I'm on Twitter as well, if you put in at and ear to hear, HLB for Hannah Louise Brown. Um, again, if you could put the link, but please just tweet, tweet me, ask me anything. Um, I'm a very open book. Fantastic, Hannah. Thanks a million for joining us this evening. Such a pleasure. All Thank the best. you. Take all care. ours. All Bye. ours. Bye. So that was the lovely Hannah Brown talking to us about her experience of having an eating disorder. So we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Parents Show this evening. Next week we are live from the Sandpit Theatre with um, a, a show dedicated to International Women's Day. Tickets still available, so um, we'll be posting that link on our Facebook page as well in just a moment. So see you in two weeks. Neve Solicitors are proud to sponsor the Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution.